And at this time, the kids can be dismissed to Sunday school. Man, I appreciate that music. Whew. I appreciate that. It's taken from number six. And just praying a blessing over each of you all. I need to gather my composure, I'd say. And my notes. Well, good morning, everyone. I am grateful uh, to Matt. Uh, for assisting us in the music portion of our worship, and I'm grateful to Westside for lending him out to us this morning. And so, this morning, we'll start in 2 Kings. We won't be here for long, but we'll start there, uh, because I need to give you some context. So, Jonah and the fish, Jonah, everybody, you know, associates it with the whale, Jonah and the whale but it's more of a fish. Uh, everybody, most people have, or are at least somewhat familiar with this story. But what I want to do is give you all a little bit of historical context, if I may. Now, I like history. Uh, I'm a fan of history. So anytime, um, you know, I, I, I get to learn more about some historical event that happened, I usually jump at it. If you are not a fan of history then I apologize. You can play some Candy Crush or something on your phone, I'm sure. No, don't do that. Don't do that. <laughs> but we're going to be in, in 2 Kings. And in 2 Kings, chapter 14, what we see here is we see the nation of Israel. Israel has been divided into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom of Israel has revolted after Solomon's son uh, Rehoboam. They rebelled against him and they said, we're going to make our own kingdom. So what we have is the two divided kingdoms, or the one divided kingdom, right? That's the proper way to say it. You have Israel in the north and then you have Judah in the south. So in 2 Kings here, we see that God is still working in Judah. We see every now and then that they have a, a king that sits on the throne in Judah, in Jerusalem, that, that does pretty good. He, he does all right. Joash is an example of this. Hezekiah is another one in chapter 18. But while this is going on, Israel in the north, in the northern kingdom, just has one disappointing king after another. As, as, as the word puts it, uh, he did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. And they are, at this point, on the verge of being invaded and defeated, conquered. And what happens when you are invaded and defeated and conquered is that then you get carried off, you get to take a trip, and it's called exile, and you are carried away. And over in the east, what we see is there is an empire that is growing, expanding, becoming more and more powerful, and they are known for their brutality, for their ruthlessness. Does anybody have an idea? You can shout it out. Anybody know what empire this is? Not yet. Before Babylon, the Assyrian Empire, the Assyrians. Now, I'm not going to make this up. I'm telling you the truth. You can Google it, test it by the, the all, almighty standard of truth. That is Google. 
The Assyrian Empire was known for their brutality. They, and they're getting more powerful, and Israel knows that they're about to be invaded. And one of the things that the Assyrians did really well was psychological warfare. In fact, the Assyrian military was credited for inventing the whole idea of psychological warfare. And one of the ways they did this was through their brutal methods. If you fought against them and were defeated, then you'd be subjected to pretty rough stuff, some pretty rough torture. And so if you were a city that saw the Assyrian military or the army approaching your city, you had one of two options. You could surrender and say, okay, take it easy on us, we surrender. Or you could fight and defend your city, and if you lost, then you'd be in trouble. So this is, in 2 Kings, the possible reality that Israel is looking at. Assyria's coming, and do we fight with the possibility of losing, or do we just surrender? And one thing that Israel could look forward to, if they decided to fight and they lost, was one of the methods of Assyrian torture. Now, uh, I, don't, I don't want to uh, be gratuitous here, but I do want to convey to you the brutality that was the Assyrian Empire. So I believe that uh, the children are in Sunday school now, so just between you and me, the adults, we're talking now. Uh, one of the things that they would do, one of the methods of torture that they would do was, was what was called pegged at a stake. Pegged at a stake. And this is the idea that uh, they'd stake you to a peg. And then they'd proceed to peel the skin off of your back. Yikes. Pretty gruesome stuff. Now, I get it. That doesn't sound great. But there's a reason why it's called pegged to a stake. Because the skin off your back, uh, maybe that's where that came from. There's no skin off my back. Because the skin off your back wasn't that big of a deal. But being pegged to the stake. And this is where I'm saying... I don't want to get too into the weeds here, so I'm trying to find the balance between inform information and discretion here. So we'll see. But uh, basically, being pegged to a stake was, think of a rake handle or a shovel handle, and you just drive that into the ground, and then you take your defeated foe, and you say, have a seat. And they would have a seat. <laughs> okay. All right. Yeah, uh, and, uh, and it wasn't so much the skin being peeled from your back as it was the wooden stick that was ever so slightly always pressing up into your internal organs. Ugh. And so the idea was a slow and painful death. It's been recorded that people who, who were pegged to a stake could actually live up to two weeks being pegged to a stake. Good grief. Yikes. <laughs> TMI, tell more information. I will. You're welcome. No, I'm just kidding. I'll let you Google the tub, the, the torture method called the tub. I won't, I won't go into that. But it wasn't just their way of doing warfare. I mean, th the Assyrian Empire was brutal. And the military was rough. But it was also their culture. In the Assyrian capital, anybody know what the capital of Assyria was? There was a hint a second ago. There's a hint on screen. Nineveh. In the Assyrian capital of Nineveh, this is how brutal it was. 
was uh, for fun, the men would play a game. They would, uh, they would gather up two pregnant women and they would cut the baby from their bellies and whoever bled the most won the game. I mean, you, yeah, hey, we talking, let's just get women the right to vote, right? I mean, come on, yikes. So this is the culture that is knocking on Israel's door. And so an, uh, an, an Israelite in 2 Kings, at this time, these people are about to invade your country. Now imagine that God has come to you and said, I want you to go to the capital of that nation and I want you to preach to that nation. I want you to preach mercy and compassion to that nation. And so this is where we are in 2 Kings 14. I think we've got it up there. 2 Kings 14, verse 25, it says, He restored, talking about Jeroboam II, the border of Israel from Labo Hamath as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah. And so now we know, okay, Jonah. This is when Jonah and the fish must have taken place. During the last period of Israel's history. So now we have an idea, a better understanding of the book of Jonah already. Because this is the thing about reading through prophetical books, books of prophecy, understanding the historical context in which they were written and in which they were prophesying, knowing the history and when they actually received the word of the Lord. This helps us better understand the prophetical books when we read through them. So, like I said, we'll start in 2 Kings, but we will turn over to Jonah chapter 1. This will be where we, where we probably end up for the remaining morning. <clears throat> so I'll turn over to the book of Jonah in chapter 1, verse 1. We'll start right there. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. Okay, real quick, not surprising, you read this sort of thing. Over and over again throughout the books of the prophets, the word, the same word comes to Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Elijah, a bunch of them. So this is pretty standard. Verse 1, chapter 1 is pretty standard. Verse 2, he says, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it for their evil, which we already talked about. We know now what their evil was, has come up before me. Given that they're about to invade Israel... This is a little unexpected because you would think that maybe God would tell Jonah to go to Samaria, the capital of Israel, and, and warn them, tell them to repent and turn back to God and re, uh, repent of their idol, idolatry. Not to go to Nineveh. And then we get to verse 3. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Now this is definitely unexpected. No other prophet that we can see from Elijah, Elisha, Isaiah, does what Jonah does here. Jonah doesn't go where the Lord sends him to go. I mean, we can contrast that with Isaiah, who famously says, here am I, Lord, send me. Here am I, Lord, send me. Before he even knows what the mission was, he's already willing to go. But Jonah, in contrast, says, no, nah, I'm good. I'm good. I'm out of here. No, thanks, bro. I'm gone. So why does Jonah refuse to go to Nineveh? 
Well, again, let's remember the historical context. Jonah is a prophet during the reign of Jeroboam II, and he is not a good king. Jonah is operating in the last period of Israel's history. He's living among a people who worship idols. Israel is not a good nation. And Jonah knows that God is not going to put up with Israel forever in her idolatry. So this helps us understand Jonah a little more because God tells him, go out and call against that great city. And Jonah may have initially thought, yeah, you understand? You all ever heard that, that, that Johnny Cash song? I think it was on a Jeep commercial. Sooner or later, sooner or later, God will cut you down. I'm trying to get that low, low part. Sooner or later, God will cut you down. Remember that? Remember that song at all? You don't remember that? Thank you, somebody. Sooner or later, God will cut you. Okay, Johnny Cash. It's classic. And so Jonah probably was thinking, oh, okay, so I'm going to go preach against that great city. But then I think he realized, wait a minute. If you're going to destroy a city, why are you sending a preacher? Why are you sending a preacher if you're going to just destroy the city? Wouldn't an angel suffice? Just send an angel and do that. You see, Jonah knows that when God warns people of their sins, this is an act of mercy on behalf of God. And praise God when you have a conviction from the Holy Spirit of sin. Dare I even say, might even feel like a little bit of shame. I messed up yesterday and I don't know what to do with it because now all of a sudden you have an opportunity to repent and make it right. This is an act of mercy on behalf of God. Shame gets a bad rap sometimes because shame can be a blessing because it alerts us to the fact that there is something wrong and God is giving us an opportunity to repent. So Jonah knows that God now is giving them an opportunity to repent. And this explains to us chapter 4 and verse 2 when he says, That is why... I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. The evil of the Assyrians, according to Jonah, must remain before God for the sake of Israel. If he has mercy and compassion on Nineveh, then God must truly be done with Israel. God is showing them mercy and compassion. These, mercy and compassion is a blessing. These are good things. Oh, how our country needs mercy and compassion. And how much better off our country would be if we experience an outflow, an outpouring of God's mercy and compassion on a wide scale. And Jonah doesn't want to be a tool that God uses to showcase his mercy and compassion to Israel's enemy. So he gets on the boat. But there's another reason that helps explain this. See, other prophets before had been sent to preach against a city, but prophets hadn't been sent to preach to a city or a nation. So God, he knows, is carrying out Scripture. He's fulfilling the warning that he gave Israel back in Deuteronomy 32. I'll turn real quick there. If you have your Bibles, turn to Deuteronomy 32. 
right after the book of Numbers. Deuteronomy 32, verse 20. This is what God warns will happen if Israel strays from him. He says, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be, for they are a perverse generation, children in whom is no faithfulness. Verse 21, he says, They have made me jealous with what is no God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. So I will make them jealous with those who are no people. And I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. If Israel provokes God to jealousy, then God will provoke them to jealousy. And he'll do this by doing what? By turning his attention toward another people. The Assyrians. And Nineveh. You see, Deuteronomy 32 is actually the Song of Moses, part of the Song of Moses. And a lot of the Old Testament uh, prophets would have known this. I would even have sang it. So when the word of the Lord comes to him, he knows what's going on. He equates this with God is fulfilling his warning against Israel. God is clearly turning his attention to another people. And you know what? I think this makes Jonah a little jealous. I think it does make him angry. He says, you're, you're going you're, you're to bless these other people and shine your face upon them? And he doesn't want to be used by God to turn his attention to a foolish nation. So he gets on a boat. So let's pick up there. In verse 4, Jonah's on the run. He's in the boat now in verse 4. And we'll just read through this so we can get, it, get a, an idea, get an image. Verse 4 says, But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Verse 5, chapter 1. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, bro, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God, dude. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And verse 7 says, And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. You see, they knew that this storm, just it, it couldn't have been natural. This was such an extreme storm. So what is going on? And so they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Verse 8. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? And what is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. And verse 10 says, Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, because they didn't want to do it, they, they resisted. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they couldn't. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. Because now they're like, okay, let's do it. And lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And verse 17 says, And the Lord 
appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Okay, so, so why, why the sea? Why the fish? Why, why does God appoint a fish? So in order to explain this, you'll have to, we'll have to back up a little bit, and I'll have to, again, like I said, I love history. And so this is kind of a historical type of message today, if you can stick with me. In the Old Testament, the prophets, how they would preach a message given to them by God was basically by acting it out. God would say, do this because this is a sign as to what I will do to that. So one of, uh, an ex- so an example would be in this case of uh, Israel's spiritual unfaithfulness. There is a prophet named Hosea that we can read about. And God tells Hosea, go and marry a woman who, is, who will not be faithful. Her name is Gomer. And when she will repeatedly be unfaithful to you, I want you to go and bring her back. And then bring her back again. She's going to do it, and you bring her back again. This is a message of God's faithfulness to his people. Because though we are unfaithful to God, he continuously brings us back. He brings us back. And that, and that was the message that Hosea was to preach through marrying this woman. So this is, Isaiah did the same sort of thing. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, they all did, they all acted out God's messages that they had. God would tell them to, to preach something, and that's how they did it. So when now we have Israel's idolatry. Uh, a spiritual adultery as the background of Jonah in 2 Kings, Israel has turned from God. So why are we talking about a fish in the sea and why God appointed a fish? Because Israel is rebelling from God. You might even say Israel has ran from God. And Jonah's story of running from God, being thrown into the sea and swallowed by a fish is a picture. Jonah doesn't know it, that he's still being used by God. Because it's a picture of what God has promised to do to the nation of Israel. Here we see Jonah as a representative of Israel. Israel has turned from God, rejected his call, refused to be a witness to the Gentiles. Israel, the nation of Israel, was called to be a light to the nations. And Jonah unwittingly is acting this out just as Hosea did with Gomer. The pagan sailors are just a foreshadowing of what will take place at Nineveh and actually a taste of the potential of what Israel could have been if they would just repent, come to her senses, and get right with God. Instead, we know that Israel is too stubborn, so God is stirring up a great storm at sea in the form of an Assyrian exile. So if Jonah is is a picture of Israel, then what is pictured by the sea? Well, this is a beautiful thing of Scripture. We can always look back and, and put these, pu- these pieces of the puzzle together. And we can see the, the parallels between each uh, story that we have probably heard since we were little kids, if we grew up in church, and then we can actually understand, oh, this is what this means. And so if Jonah is a picture of Israel, then what is the sea a picture of? Well, Psalm 65, verse 7, who stills God... He stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of the waves, 
and the tumult of the peoples. We, we see here is people, waves, and seas are used interchangeably. You all understand? So basically, Jonah is a picture of Israel. The seas are a picture of Gentile nations. In fact, you know what other prophet was operating around this time? Because God just didn't send one prophet at a time. He would send prophet after prophet after prophet. Isaiah, prophet Isaiah was, was operating and preaching at this time too. In Isaiah chapter 5, verse 30, he says, They growl over it on that day like the growling of the sea. And if one looks to the land, behold, darkness and distress. What is the land that Isaiah is talking about here? He's talking about the nation of Israel. Isaiah also prophesies about nations in chapter 17, verse 12. The thunder, ah, the thunder of many peoples. They thunder like the thundering of the sea. Ah, the roar of nations. They roar like the roaring of mighty waters. Verse 13, the nations roar like the roaring of many waters, but he will rebuke them, and they will flee far away. So we see how Israel is compared to the land, and the enemies of God are like the sea or the waters. And how they are a picture of, of a threat to the people. And so just as Jonah is thrown into the sea, so too Israel will be thrown into exile. And Assyria will just be the beginning. As we mentioned earlier, Babylon will come and take care of the rest. Jonah being asleep, you all get, in the boat, and, uh, and then being thrown overboard into the sea is a picture of Israel being spiritually asleep and thrown from the land into uh, exile. And then later, Judah in the Babylonian exile. But what does verse 17 say? And the Lord appointed a fish. So God appoints a fish. Israel is cast into the sea of exile now, but we read through Scripture and see how God appoints, just like this fish, kings and rulers. Are you all with me here? You all with me still? Okay, because I don't want to see glazed eyes. Okay, because now we're getting into the weeds a little bit. And so uh, I can tell a joke if you all need to, you know, kind of, whoa, 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 wake up. Because this, this, is, this is huge stuff. This is big stuff. So if, so if we're too far into the weeds, I can't get us out. But, you know, maybe I can get a metaphorical lawnmower. I don't, I don't even know what that means. I, so we have Jonah as a picture of Israel. The sea as a picture of Gentile nations. And now the fish pictures for us Gentile kings and rulers. Daniel 2, 21, God, right? It is he who changes the times and periods. He removes kings and he sets up or appoints kings. And here's another one, Isaiah 45, verse 1. He's talking about Cyrus now. He says, the Lord, thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped. What he's saying is that I have directed, I have led him to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings. See, God chooses him, God leads him, he directs him. And actually, just like the fish, because you all understand that if, if Jonah hadn't been swallowed by the fish, he probably would have drowned. Now, the fish wasn't an ideal spot, but it was a, but it was a safe and just like the fish, he says this in verse 4 of a Gentile ruler, Cyrus, Isaiah 45, 4. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I call you by name. It's for their sake. I name you, though you do not know me. Psalm 74 describes 
the exodus from Egypt, and he, and, and he describes Pharaoh this way. You divided, you, uh, the Lord divided the sea. You divided it by your might. You broke the heads of the sea monsters on the waters. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. The idea there is that that is a metaphor for the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And when we have this from Jeremiah that describes Nebuchadnezzar, in Babylon as a sea monster that will swallow up Israel. Jeremiah 51 verse 34, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, has devoured me. He has crushed me. He has made me an empty vessel. He has swallowed me like a monster. And he has filled his stomach with my delicacies and wrenched me out. So you see how Jonah in his rebellion represents the nation of Israel, the people of God, in their rebellion turning and running from God. We see how Jonah is then cast into the sea just as Israel will suffer punishment and defeat and be thrown into the sea of a Gentile exile and how God appointed a great fish just as he appoints these great and terrifying kings and rulers. Man, so he's in this belly now, this fish that God appointed. And then chapter 2 starts out with three very good words. He says, then Jonah prayed and we can skip all the way to the chapter to the end of chapter 2 and verse 10 to see the result of his prayer verse 10 and the lord spoke to the fish and it vomited jonah out upon the dry land god makes promises and god keeps promises and god promises that the storms of life will come to an end and we have that hope because we see we have a verse 10 and the lord spoke to the fish Oh, he is slow to anger. And he is the God of not just second chances, not just third chances, but fourth and fifth. And I praise him for that today. Jeremiah 51, verse 44, and speaking about Israel's exile, he uses the same language found in Jonah. He says this, he says, And I will punish Baal, the God of Babylon, and take out of his mouth what he has swallowed. Actually, the Holman Christian says, I will make him vomit what he swallowed. You feel like the enemy's got you. You're, you've been chewed up, but not yet spit out. God will make him vomit up. Oh, that sounds gross, but man, that moves me. It's like, oh, yes, he's going to vomit it out. Ooh. Wait, taking out of context live stream, if you just skip forward, that's rewind like five minutes. All right, so very quickly, we've got a deeper understanding of Jonah, the sea, the fish, that, that God gave him instructions to go preach one message, but then through his uh, foolish rebellion, then now he's preaching another message, a message of warning to the Israelites that this is going to be what happens. And then in verse uh, 1 of chapter 3, he goes and he does what he was originally told to do. And we have a deeper understanding as to what was happening with Jonah. Not even to mention uh, the sovereignty of God, even through man's rebellion. How that all plays a part. There's too much here for me to get through on a Sunday morning. So, And I don't think I'm allowed to come back next week. So we'll see. I don't know. So we're left to ask, okay. Jonah, in his rebellion, was sent away in a type of exile into the sea to show that the nation of Israel would be carried off, defeated, and sent away in exile. Okay, so how, how does this, what does this mean to me? Well, number one, 
Turn back to verse 3, or verse 3, chapter 1. It says, But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa, and he found a ship. He found a boat. He found a boat. Listen, you and I are called to engage in spiritual warfare on a daily basis. I've, I've mentioned this before, and it bears repeating again. We are called to engage in spiritual warfare, and we have an enemy. And if you decide to turn from God, run from God, rebel against God, let me just tell you that you have an enemy who is ready and waiting and willing to always provide for you a boat. He will give you a boat. Fight the temptation to get on a boat. Meaning, number one, recognize that the enemy will tempt you to neglect not only your relationship with God, but also your call that God has given you and placed on your life. He will provide for you a way out and tempt you. No, oh, I, I, am, I am prone to wander. Lord, I feel it prone to leave the God I love. I am prone to look for and get on a boat on a daily basis. I am prone to escape God's call on my life and, or at the very least neglect it. We must resist the temptation to be prone to wander. And there could be someone here today, and more than likely there is, that has been running from God's call on their, on their life for so long that now they're comfortable. They're so comfortable. You might be so comfortable that you are now, like Jonah, asleep on the boat. Completely comfortable asleep while there are storms in your life that you could calm through the work of God. But you are blinded by what God is doing around you. So examine yourself. Be vigilant. Have I rejected God? Have I rejected God's call on my life? Have I even ever accepted God? Have I ever even put my faith and my trust in the name of Jesus? Not just for eternity, but for tomorrow. <laughs> Did you get on that boat that the enemy made look so attractive? Where are you? Are you running from God or are you in the will of God? Ask yourself that before you leave today. Now, verse 12, he said to them, pick me up. This is Jonah saying, verse 12 in chapter 1, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, verse 13, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and they hurled him into the sea. You see, they all knew, Jonah and the sailors, they all knew. You go overboard, you're done. You're gone. But here we see in verse 17... God appoints a fish. <laughs> a stinky belly of a fish. <laughs> I don't know how you would describe your life today, and maybe you would describe it like you're inside the stinking belly of a fish. 
But I, I want to just say a couple of things here. Look, number one, if it wasn't for this belly of a fish, Jonah would be gone. So maybe what we need to do is, you know what? Thank God for the stinking belly of the fish because if it wasn't for the stinking situation that you're in, maybe God is saving you from something much worse. Maybe God is saving you from drowning. Give thanks to God in all circumstances. I, I wasn't sure if I was going to mention this example or not, but I'll go ahead and say it. Uh, you all familiar with uh, Corrie ten Boom? Uh, she was a uh, uh, prisoner, prisoner in a uh, Nazi concentration camp. And I believe it was her and her sister. Now, correct me if my facts are disinformation. I don't want to do that. But there's a story that her and her sister were in the, in the uh, barracks or wherever they kept them, the cabins or whatever they, wherever they kept them. Uh, and her and her sister, their, their sleeping arrangement was infested with fleas. It was infested with fleas. And they said, this is awful. You all might have heard this before. I think we brought this up before. But it's a really good reminder. They were infested with fleas. And, and so her and her sister, they, they uh, go to pray at night. And they said, we should give uh, thanks to God for everything that we have. And then her sister says, even for the fleas? And she said, yeah, even for the fleas. And they said, okay, whatever. I'm not feeling it, but maybe you lead that part of the prayer. I don't know how it went down. But they gave thanks even for the fleas. When they were rescued, however, however, many, however much time later, uh, they were always wondering why the guards always kept their distance from them. The guards... Rarely ever, if ever, went into their sleeping arrangements because the guards would do some unsavory things to the prisoners. But Corrie Ten Boom and her sister were safe. And it turns out the reason why was because the guards didn't like the fleas. You thank God for the stinking belly of a fish because it could always, it could be worse. Especially. Especially as we see here with Jonah, that's self-inflicted. He, he, he was rebelling. He was running. That's self-inflicted. Huh. Give thanks to God in all circumstances. Now, maybe your circumstance isn't self-inflicted. What do you do? It doesn't change anything. You pray. Jonah chapter 2, verse 1. Then Jonah prayed. You pray and you seek God. As you read through chapter 2, you see Jonah's remorse and you see how he shows and acknowledges who God is and how he has rescued him and, and, and his, uh, how he has dealt with Jonah in his rebellion. What if it's self-inflicted? What if it's not? What if it's a good circumstances? Maybe everything's going good. Maybe it's going bad. Regardless, it's all the same. You pray and we seek God and we worship God because he's worthy in every circumstances to be praised. So take encouragement and look forward to when you come to the verse 10 in your life. So we all need to do this. We all need to pray. And we all need to seek God, no matter the circumstances. So number one, recognize, number one, that the enemy will always tempt us 
to reject the call of God on our lives. Resist the temptation to drift from the presence of God. Number two, give thanks to God in all circumstances. Rest in his goodness, his patience, his wisdom, his steadfast love and worship him because he has probably saved you many times before when you had no idea. And if you did, it was probably from something worse. But look, and I'll close with this. These only apply to those of us who have put our faith in and confessed Jesus as our Lord. That he lived a perfect life, crucified on a cross for my sins, and was raised three days later, ascended to the Father in heaven, and will come again one day. Number three, it's the last last thing I'll say. Just as Jonah's exile into the sea and into the fish was a warning for Israel and her exile, Israel's exile serves as a symbol for our own spiritual exile. We have been separated by God, from God. And we suffer that separation from God due to our sinfulness and how that is incompatible with His holiness. But praise God, though we were once far off, God has made a way. Ephesians 2, it was the verse that we read earlier. Remember that you were at the time separated from Christ, having no hope and without God in the world. But verse 13 says, Now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, you who once were exiled from God, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Amen. We can be brought near. We can enter into God's presence and we can worship Him because of what Jesus has done in the work that He did on the cross. God has made a way for us to return home because Philippians 3.20 actually says that our citizenship is in heaven. And we don't have to stay distant We worship a God who has made a way for us to be brought near, and that is through the blood of Jesus. If you have not returned home from exile, if you have not placed your trust, your faith in Jesus Christ and rested on that, man, I pray that you do. We're going to sing this song. We're going to sing this song. And we we did this a little bit last week. I want to do it again. We're going to open up the altar. If you want to come pray, and you come pray. I'm going to hang out right here. And you come pray. If you haven't, I pray that you will place your trust in the blood of Jesus. Because the Father stands ready with arms wide open to greet you and to welcome you home. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you for all that you have done. How you lived a perfect life. Only to sacrifice yourself on my behalf for my sins. You paid the debt that I could not pay. Though you did not owe it. And I thank you, Lord, because you overcame death. You overcame the grave and you were raised again three days later. Lord Jesus, I thank you. 
for there is power in that name. And oh, that you have made a way for us to be brought near. You have made a way for us to have our worship be made acceptable to you. And it is through the cross of Christ. Lord, I pray that you would be glorified as we sing. And I pray that if there is someone here, Lord, I pray, Lord, for them right now that your spirit would be so convicting that he would convict in such a mighty way. Oh, that you would be irresistible. Let decisions be made if they need to be made. Let new directions be be, uh, sought after if they need to be gone in. Lord, I pray that you would move and have your way today. In Jesus' mighty name, we pray. Matt's going to lead us. So we'll stand as Matt leads and let's sing and let's worship.